The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. sang in the early part of the service today some hymns that brought echoes of Easter to you, resurrection songs. I was actually tempted to title my sermon Easter in October, but I thought maybe the title that I did use is more directly what the text has to say. I'm reading for you from John 11, beginning at verse 38 today, this resurrection event. We've been building up to it now in in the 11th chapter, as we've seen in a couple of episodes, how this uh, incident of a wonderful miracle of the raising of Lazarus was being told here, very carefully prepared for in the way it's told, and now we come to the actual event, and Lord willing, we'll look at the aftermath of it next week. John 11, I read beginning at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. His hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is God's wonderful word of true and a miraculous event. When I was thinking about the idea of a voice waking the dead There came into my mind a long ago day when I was playing with some of my neighborhood friends. And it was a rainy day, and so about a half dozen or more of us were forced into one friend's basement room to play. Thankfully, a mom indulged us with permission. And uh, so you can imagine a half a dozen boys ranging from, I don't know, about 8 to 12, I think. And uh, everything was war in those days. We had our plastic guns. Some of us were armed with several plastic guns. And, of course, we all watched war and, you know, cops and robbers and cowboys on TV. So we all had perfected the, the sounds that guns made. Our guns didn't make any sounds, but we made the sounds. We could make the sound of a machine gun or a pistol or a hand grenade or you name it. And so we played war. Up and down the basement stairs, back and forth, falling against each other, slamming into walls, shouting, You're dead, I got you. 
and all the things that would go on, as you can imagine. Well, at some point, one of the date reasons I remember this day is because of an unusual thing that was said by the mom, a, a very indulgent and patient mom, I realize now, who uh, called out to us at one point, and she was just being mildly sarcastic when she called and said, if you boys could just make a little bit louder racket, I'm sure that instead of killing each other, you would succeed in waking the dead. Well, I remembered that because it was such a novel idea to me, the idea that we could somehow disturb the eternal slumber of the dead was something I'd never thought about, I suppose, up to that time. Well, little did I know at that age that at a very crucial moment in history that we've read about this morning, the shouted command of the Son of God did exactly that. A voice awakened the dead, a truly dead man named Lazarus. And I'm sure that I didn't equate it either to the promise of the Scripture that at the end of history, God has said that the dead in Christ are going to be summoned by the loud call of our Savior again to join him in resurrection, glory, and eternal joy. Now, in our previous looks at John 11, we've seen how carefully arranged this passage. It sort of builds slowly, this passage, uh, in the initial part of Jesus being somewhere else, getting the news, taking his time to get there, although we believe Lazarus had died possibly before, or certainly before they even set out to come back. Uh, finally coming, finding all the grief, interacting with the sisters and so on, weeping at the tomb, the groaning of Jesus, his great trouble of his soul at, at death, the fact that death disturbed Jesus in the deepest possible way. And yet, even last time, the deep sympathy that came forth from Christ didn't seem, at least in the human evaluation anyway, it didn't seem to make too much difference because death had won for all appearances. Well, great, Jesus, we're glad you came to cry with us, but death has had the last word. Well, now we find it's not so. The raising of Lazarus is the seventh of a series of great miracles highlighted in the Gospel of John. They're called signs in John, things that signify the whole theme of John, that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God. And this last great miracle actually ends the, the, the first main large section of John. You can, it's not a bold line drawn, but you can see a division at the end of 11 as chapter 12 begins to go into the events that cover basically the last week and the resurrection of the life of Christ. The, the passion of Christ begins with the triumphal entry in chapter 12. So, in other words, the last 10 chapters of John cover approximately one week, when up till here, everything up through chapter 11 has covered several years of Jesus' life and ministry. This brief scene, as I read it from verses 38 to 44 of John 11, being, having Lazarus be called out of his tomb, it almost seems kind of anticlimactic when it finally happens because there's been so much buildup to it. And I was pondering and, and realizing that, you know, when, when we look at a scene like this, we know what's going to happen. 
You know, we knew that when we began to read John 11. If you have any knowledge of the Bible, you know Lazarus is going to be raised. So from our 21st century viewpoint, you know, the whole thing is, is not a surprise. But can you imagine being there? Even though Jesus said, your brother will live again, even though he said, I'm the resurrection and the life and all these things, people responded, oh, yes, Lord, I know that he'll rise at the last day. They were not coming to that tomb and expecting a dead man to walk out. They must have been scared out of their wits when they saw this actually happen. And yet, stubborn unbelief persisted because just as a little preview, next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to see how some who were there who saw it, who did not deny that a dead man rose, got together, and what did they say? They said, we've got to get rid of Jesus. He has to die. Their belief persisted right through this. Unbelief. So the message being conveyed here in John eleven thirty-eight to 44 is that Christ provides the great gift of life from God and does it by his own command. He can call and the dead awaken. And that isn't just one isolated person off there in ancient history. It is given us here to understand in light of the resurrection of Jesus that is coming in a matter of a few days away that everlasting life is given to you and to me as we respond to the call of this same Savior. The gracious call of God takes us from spiritual death to eternal life. Well, first look with me at verse 40. And we see Jesus once again, the English Standard Version that I read said that uh, he was deeply moved again. Some translations say he groaned again. This deep emotional reaction that Jesus had is emphasized a second time. Death deeply disturbed him, seeing what Satan was able to do to the image of God in man by bringing about the corruption and the horror of death and the loss of this loved one. And he approaches it again with a deep emotion. And then he gives this simple command, take away the stone. We picture, you know, you've all seen the Sunday school pictures of the tomb with a roughly circular stone of some kind. Maybe it wasn't a disc, but whatever it was, it was something that a couple men could remove, and they did. And here's Martha. Remember, I called her the home economics major, and uh, she's saying, Lord, what are you doing? What do you want, a last view of his body? That is not really going to be a good idea. He, his flesh is already being corrupted. It's going to smell badly. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see what? The glory of God? I take that word of Jesus as this first point and say to you, believing is seeing here. Believing is seeing. Now that's reverse, of course, of what the world says. You know what they, I don't know if any of you were born and raised in the state of Missouri, but out there they call it the show me state, you know. Give me proof. I'm, I'm a hard one to convince, I guess, is what Missourians are trying to say. Show me some proof and I'll believe. And human beings generally try to say that. They think they're being very scientific because if you know what the scientific method is, it's, it's a matter of observing 
noting the, how things work and writing it down and then forming a hypothesis. And based on the evidence I'm able to see, here's what I think is true. So the world says, seeing is believing. Well, Jesus said, if you believe, you'll see something that is not visible to the ordinary eye of flesh. Earlier here in the previous chapter 10, verse 37, he said, if I'm doing the works of my Father, even if you don't believe in me, you should believe the works. If you really are the scientists that you claim to be who say seeing is believing, the miracles should convince you of something. But we know they didn't in many instances. Miracles by themselves really didn't convert very many people. All those 5,000 who ate the bread that he multiplied were basically well, what was that all about? Well, what, what do you think happened there? He didn't necessarily convert anyone on the spot. And Jesus knew this. He knew it wasn't a case of human beings just needing, you know, I got a stronger prescription for my glasses this year. And I was amazed at the difference. Wow. I, I couldn't hardly see at all. The TV was all blurry across the room. And I'm, wow, I didn't think it was that good. I, is that what people needed? Better glasses? No, they needed faith. They needed to interpret the works of God, believe his word, and see that God would do things that weren't just a matter of the working of your optic nerve transmitting something to your brain. There are people today, of course, people who sit in our sanctuary or have in years past, who hear the gospel or hear a word about Christ and believe something. I've had wonderful tales told to me of folks who've trusted Christ sitting here in our sanctuary, who never knew what the gospel was before. And they are people who believed something, and all of a sudden, it was like the whole world had a, not a three-dimensional world, it had a fourth dimension that they never saw before, because God was working. And they became aware of his work. That's what Jesus is talking about. Believe, and you'll see the glory of God. That's what a Christian does, you see. We see more of the world, not less, more than others see if they're only looking in the physical dimension. Well, now we go to the heart of the text here in the second place with verses 41 to 43. And as a point, my point here actually has two parts to it. The second point says this, we need to see a bold request and a life-giving call. The bold request is the prayer of Jesus, prayed out loud at the open tomb, I'm often conscious of something that seems to be highlighted here. You know, when I have to lead you in prayer, um, I'm talking to God, and he's the one I need to concentrate upon. What do I want to say to God? Praise, thanksgiving, petition, something. Uh, what I'm saying to him is, is foremost, but I'm not in my own bedroom by myself. You're all here. And so I'm conscious that you're hearing what I say, and while I'm not giving you an address, Nevertheless, in praying to God, I'm conscious that you're there. That's what Jesus was saying here. I come to you, Father, and I thank you that you have heard me. Not that I ever doubted that. But I say this for the sake of those standing by, so they might know that this is a work you and I are doing together. Now, it's evident that this isn't the first time that Jesus prayed. Perhaps he had prayed as he stood there weeping in the previous verses when he before the tomb was open 
I would guess he surely prayed in the time when he was traveling from where he was across the Jordan where he got the news about Lazarus and, and traveled to Bethany in that period of time, a day or so. He was praying about what would happen and praying for God to be glorified so that now as he comes, he, he doesn't come, you know, with the kind of petition. You know what you and I would come? We would say, okay, Lord, I'm here to ask you to do something great. I'm here to ask you to break the rules of the physical universe just this one time, Lord. Do this one thing because look at this great opportunity that I've got to impress all these people. Lord, if you raise Lazarus up, I'll never ask anything hard of you again. I kind of think that's the way some of us would pray about that. Jesus had already prayed, and so it says he lifted his eyes and he gave thanks. He said, Father, thank you that you hear me. When it says he lifted up his eyes, I'm reminded of a psalm that's often misunderstood, I think. Psalm 121, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. You know, there are a lot of people that seem to think that that's about, I believe the nun in The Sound of Music who memorably quoted that seemed to think that, that uh, help comes from the hills. That's not what it says. I'll lift my eyes to the hills. I'll lift my eyes to the highest thing on the earth, and then I'll ask a question. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord who's higher than the hills, you see. It's not the hills that provide help. It's the Lord. And who is the Lord? He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's the source of all power, in other words. That's who Jesus prayed to. Now, you see, Martha didn't have that focus. Her eyes weren't lifted up, really, at all. Her eyes were trained on a square, dark opening in the rock. And all she could think about was, oh, no, this is going to be really embarrassing. This is going to smell terrible. You know, this is going to be like the Amishman has just done the field or something. And, whoo, you don't want to be standing right there. Martha didn't lift up her eyes. But Jesus did. And he could give praise and thanksgiving. And I wonder how that perhaps serves as a model for us when we pray. How much is praise and thanksgiving at the front end of our praying? Or do we just somehow maybe remember to tack it on after we've given God the long laundry list of what we want him to do? Well, out of this then, after a bold request with thanksgiving, comes this life-giving call. Lazarus, come out. The Greek experts make the point that, that it really just, it's actually very blunt. It just says, get out. Get out of there. It's like an order. You're not where you belong. And one commentator has an interesting little discourse about, well, why did he have to shout? You know, did Lazarus only hear a loud, a very loud voice? And the little explanation is offered that I at least like the thought behind it, if it's true or not. He says that this person sees it as a a counterpoint to a text in Isaiah 8.19. 8.19. This might be stretching, but Isaiah 8.19 says, don't listen to and don't follow, quote, wizards and necromancers who chirp and mutter. I love that. 
In other words, Jesus is not some kind of a magician here working hocus-pocus spells. He is the commander-in-chief of life. And what he is issuing is not a suggestion, not a creative idea. It's a command. And his call to command life is a command that wakes the dead because it's the command that acts in union with who? The creator of all things. And what do we know about the creator? Back in Genesis, how did the world come to be? God spoke and it was. Things that were not were. And so we see that again reflected here in the commander of life. Back in John 5, 25, Jesus had earlier said, the dead are going to hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. Who but God does that? Who but God speaks a word of power like that? And so you have the very simple statement, the man who died came out. Notice there were no aftermath, you know, there were no TV cameras. Lazarus, give us your thoughts about being in the tomb four days, you know. How did that feel? This is what WGAL would do, I'm quite sure, you know. We have the exclusive report, the only ones to report on the rising of Lazarus. No. Lazarus says nothing. Mary and Martha say nothing. Jesus says nothing further. The man who died came out. I believe God is telling us that the voice of Christ similarly, as we see the whole span of Scripture, calls individuals to new life in Jesus Christ today. Sure, that was a visible historic miracle, but it's symbolic. It's a model for what God does today in the believer. 1 Peter 1.23 says, You have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. He speaks his word and he brings life to you. And I have to stop and challenge. Have you heard the word of God calling you to life in Christ? Calling you to come out from a life that's, that's full of dead things and be made new. The scripture says when Christ issues that call, it's an effectual call. It actually bestows the life that it calls for. It actually enables us to have faith and respond to nothing less than a miracle. Every Christian responding to new life in Jesus Christ is a miracle just as much as Lazarus was. Now thirdly, there's a quick thing I must give you here, and I'm watching the clock. John eleven forty four. Lazarus came out of the grave to the astonishment of all. And then I want you to hear this, because I don't think it's merely incidental. We read, his hands and feet were bound with linen strips, and his face was bound with a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. I say to you that since Lazarus is the prototype for new life in Christ, this concluding point says this to us. In the Christian's new life, there's a dress code. And grave clothes are banned. No grave clothes in the Christian's new life. 
Once we have a new birth in Christ, we're citizens of a different kingdom. Why would we go into that kingdom wearing the stinking rags of a tomb? Let me give you an analogy. I'm sure it's badly flawed, but and we'll leave the Red Sox alone because I bore you with that. So Phillies, you're all Phillies fans, or a lot of you are. Let's say the Phillies trade for a star player from the St. Louis Cardinals, green and red. Suppose that player hops on his plane, has to get there the next day to be in the lineup with the Phillies in Philadelphia for a next game. What if he walks out on the field with the rest of the team to play his position and he's wearing a St. Louis Cardinals uniform? Isn't he in a little bit of trouble? Or at least doesn't he look extremely bizarre? If you were in the stands, you'd go, wait a minute, didn't somebody give that guy the word? He's not a cardinal anymore, he's a Philly. Where's the equipment manager? Issue him a proper uniform. Well, it's the same principle. If we're born anew by the grace of God through faith and his grace has given us literally the beginnings of an eternal life, then why are we wearing the shreds and rags of our old nature and even insisting on holding on to them? A new Christian tends to be a person who, to some extent, is bound by habits and expectations and affections and even principles of life that they say, well, isn't that the way everybody does things? And somebody has to point out to him, no, you're a new person. You have a new life. And God wants you dressed in a new way. Because frankly, some of the things you're wearing stink. If you don't believe it, Ephesians 4 has a word about that. Ephesians 4.22 and following says this, from Paul, put off your old self that belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupted by deceitful desires. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We're called to a life characterized by different behaviors and different values, different loves, a new wardrobe, so to speak, of Christian character and Christ-likeness is set out for us. But you know, a lot of times I don't think we even recognize the old things, the stinking things that we're still wearing. It might take counsel from a mature Christian or a pastor to sit down with you and say, you know, have you recognized what it means to have the fruit of the Spirit and and to see a life growing more and more like Christ and, and following the different mores of Scripture? One area, and it's only one. I can't begin to illustrate all the areas, but one would be the whole area of sexuality in our culture. How much we clash with with the world's graveyard ideas of what sexuality is. And many people come to Christ and they've lived in that old world and they say, well, you know, I'm living with this woman, but we're going to get married someday, so I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Or I'm strongly troubled with same-sex attraction and 51% of the population now says that's fine. I don't see a problem with that. And pornography is easily available and I can have that without hurting another person. What's wrong with that? I'll tell you what's wrong with it. They're all graveyard activities. 
they're all contrary to living in righteousness and holiness. God has a way for sexuality. We've spoken about this many times. I'm not going to go very far down this side road for a moment, but just to illustrate, God calls us to have the wonderful gift of sexuality within the bonds of marriage. He calls us to new behaviors in terms of telling the truth, in terms of honoring people in authority, humbly serving others, praying, worshiping. A whole new set of clothing to put on in a very deliberate way. You say, well, that's hard. Yes, it's hard. But God doesn't command anything that he doesn't also intend to give you some ability by his Holy Spirit to obey him. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52 promises the completion of this. The day when the last shred, the last rag that survives from our pre-Christ life is taken from us, is said there, 1 Corinthians when the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed and this mortal body will put on immortality. Now, that's saying the new clothing doesn't complete it until our presence with Christ. But the process of moving there should be underway. The recognition, that thing draped over my arm smells bad and does me no honor, and does Christ no honor, let's get rid of it. It's part of the Christian life. Well, death certainly lost its grip on Lazarus this day, and it only symbolized what was going to happen in just a matter of days when Christ himself would come out of his tomb. And of course, it's his victory over the grave that broke the hold it has on us. If you're someone who says, yes, I have new life in Christ. Yes, I rejoice in his resurrection. Do you have a concern about the grave wrappings that you might be still parading around in? The call of Jesus to Lazarus festering in a grave was, come out of there. And his secondary call to others was, set the man free. Take off the grave shrouds. We heard earlier in our service today, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The old doesn't count anymore. The old is worthless. The old smells bad. Put on the new. And God, by his spirit, doesn't command things unless he also intends to help us, encourage us, and strengthen us to make it possible to put on that new wardrobe. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this wonderful miracle. I can't imagine being there to see it. It's reported so calmly, but what a wonder it was. But then that greater wonder that no human eye witnessed when Jesus himself came forth from his tomb, and that, on that, we pin all our hopes. Thank you for the promise that we too are made new out of a dead old life, made new in Christ. I pray for the struggle that many of us have in one form or another, all of us have to some extent, the struggle to recognize and put off the things that belong to the life of spiritual death. Help us, Father. Make us wise. Make us brave. 
Let us seek your help for what we cannot do ourselves. May you get the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.